This is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up this Sunday morning. Dick Donahue with you here on KGMI. Well, we had a drop in the budget deficit. Is it a sugar high? After nearly three years of the economic and financial market distortion due to COVID lockdowns, money printing, and massive government borrowing, some of these distortions are subsiding. For example, the federal budget deficit in fiscal year 21 was $2.78 trillion. But for the fiscal year 2022, which was at the end of September, it fell to $1.375 trillion. And as you would expect, some are treating this as a huge progress towards fiscal sanity. We beg to differ. First, the budget deficit is a percentage of GDP, was 5.5% of GDP last year. That is the eighth largest since 1947. Second, because of the way government accounting is done, the Biden administration's policy to forgive some student loan debt added $426 billion to the deficit will likely add substantially more as we get details on the proposal to limit future repayments based on income. In other words, policymakers in Washington, D.C. are still itching to come up with new ways to ramp up spending. And third, the federal government spent 25.1% of GDP last year. With the exception of the COVID years, fiscal year 2022 spending as a share of GDP was the highest since any year since World War II. That's right. This is even higher than the peak year of the financial panic in 2009, when spending peaked at 24.3% of GDP. What makes this even more astonishing is that the unemployment rate averaged 3.8% during this past fiscal year, compared with 8.5% in fiscal year 2009. This begs the question, with government spending so high, how in the world did the deficit decline so much? The answer is a surge in government revenue. Revenue hit 19.6% of GDP last year, only surpassed by the last two years of World War II and the year 2000 during the dot-com boom. Individual income tax receipts soared 29% last year to an all-time record high. They were $1 trillion above the level of fiscal year 2020. What makes this surge in revenue so unique is that in the last 31 months since March of 2020, U.S. workers have worked 31.2 billion fewer hours than they would have if employment would have remained flat as it was in February of 2020 level. That's a lot of lost production, yet the federal government keeps raking in more revenues. How? Well, it's because the massive fiscal and monetary stimulus of 20 and 21 was essentially economic morphine that policymakers used to mask, or part of at least, the pain of unprecedented COVID-19-related shutdowns. What morphine artificially and temporarily boosted the economic activity has now led to the highest inflation in 40 years. Nominal wages and profits surged, and so did government revenue. In a sense, the government borrowed from the future generations to hand out checks and then taxed its own stimulus back after it circulated in the economy. This is sugar high, can't and won't last. But now, because of high inflation, the government is pulling back on monetary morphine. Although we don't think a recession has started yet, we think a recession is on the horizon, which means that the fiscal picture in 23 and 24 will not be anywhere as good. So look for bigger budget deficits in the next few years, as the revenue, sugar high, wears off. And let's look at our global roundup for the week. We found that the Fed indicates that rates are to rise more, but in smaller increments. 
So global equities were lower in the week as the U.S. Federal Reserve threw cold water on a notion that is contemplating a dovish pivot that could prematurely loosen financial conditions. The yield of the 10-year U.S. Treasury note rose 20 basis points, that would be two-tenths of 1%, to 4.17%, while the price of the barrel of West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil climbed $92 from $88.15 a week ago, and volatility as measured by the CBOE Volatility Index, or VIX, fell to $24.75 from $27 last week. And looking at our global macro news, the Fed is diverging from its peers. A week ago, markets began to sense that central banks were shifting into lower gear after front-loading a number of aggressive rate hikes throughout the year. With one notable exception, that's proven true. However, the exception is a big one, the U.S. Federal Reserve. And while the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Bank of Canada, and the Bank of England have begun to tighten in smaller increments, for the, or in the case of the Bank of England, it indicates that they likely will, the Fed warned that while rates might rise in smaller chunks after the next meeting or two, the terminal rate will likely be higher than it was assumed to be in September when the Fed first published forecasts. Chair Jerome Powell also stressed in his Wednesday press conference that it's very premature to talk about a pause in the hiking cycle. Powell emphasized that the risk of not tightening enough and letting inflation become entrenched far outweighs the risk of tightening too much. And the countries that have already begun to slow the pace of rate hikes share one thing in common. Economies that are highly exposed to the housing market, primarily through the variable rate mortgages. The economy in the United States, with its heavy adoption of fixed rate mortgages, is less sensitive to a rise in mortgage rates. And though the housing sector is facing difficult times, the spillovers to the broad economy are less pronounced in the U.S. And U.S. labor markets are remaining resilient. U.S. non-farm payrolls rose 261,000 in October, well above the consensus forecast for a 200,000 gain, but it was a modest decline from September's upwardly revised 315,000 increase. The unemployment rate ticked up to 3.7% from 3.5% as the labor force participation rate declined a tenth of 1% to 62.2%. The robust rise in payrolls, coupled with firmer than expected average hourly earnings up four-tenths of one percent, indicates that there is nothing in the report that would undermine the hawkish message delivered by Chair Powell on Wednesday that the labor market remains out of balance. I'll cover the labor report and Chairman Powell's remarks here a little bit more in a few minutes. And record eurozone inflation is keeping pressure on the European Central Bank. So just days after signaling that it would like to slow the pace of rate hikes, the European Central Bank was forced to confront a continued surge in eurozone inflation. Preliminary October consumer price data released on Monday showed inflation jumping at a record 10.7% from the year prior, while core prices rose 5%, which is also a record. Markets have pushed expectations for the ECB terminal rate to near 3% from 1.5% level where they stand today. And odds of another three-quarter of a percent rate hike in December are now about 50-50. On Thursday, European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde said the ECB still has a way to go on raising interest rates in order to counter inflation. And a few quick hits here. The Bank of England raised its rates three-quarters of one percent on Thursday, which is the highest rate in 30 years. That brings the policy rate to three percent. The Bank of England signaled that borrowing costs may not have to rise as much as markets are forecasting. And the Norway's Norges Bank raised its rates by a quarter percent to two and a half percent on Thursday. A further rise in December is expected. The Reserve Bank of Australia raised its rates a quarter percent to 2.85 percent while signaling further tightening ahead. And the euro area economy grew at 2.1 percent rate in the third quarter. The growth was somewhat more resilient than expected. It is projected to slow down from here. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be back in a minute. 
Want to win big? We're celebrating 50 years at Barron. Hi, I'm John Barron, owner of Barron Heating, AC, Electrical, and Plumbing. And I'm Brad Barron, fourth generation here at Barron. I'll never forget the tools in Dad's garage and the paperwork on Mom's table as our home became the beginnings of Barron Heating. Our humble start grew into the Barron of today, serving five counties and providing careers for over 200 families. Since 1972, customers have been the heart of our business. And today, those family values are put into every job we do. We love this community and want to celebrate with savings on solar, generators, plumbing, air duct cleaning, and more. Plus, save 20% on services like annual maintenance as a Silver Shield member. And five people will win 5,000 Baron bucks towards any Baron service or installation. Book through November 30th to be entered to win. From all of us at Baron, thank you. We look forward to serving you for the next 50 years. Baron Heating, AC, Electrical, and Plumbing. Our mission, improving lives. No purchase necessary. Visit BaronHeating.com for details. Lindale Glass is your premier window and door company in Whatcom and Skagit County. With over 35 years of professional installation experience, you can rely on the dedicated employees at Lindale Glass to provide an exceptional install. Lindale Glass features Milgard windows and doors, leading the industry with innovative, high-quality products. You can be assured of a product that is customized for your home. No shortcuts, no gimmicks, just excellent service and exceptional quality from Milgard. Visit a Lindale showroom to learn more or online at lindaleglass.com. My name is Marcus Virta, and I manage a small business here in Whatcom County called Western Solar. Every day I see firsthand the impact good jobs have on the lives of people. Sharon Shoemake is an economist and a mom who brings practical, real-life experience to the state Senate. I became an economist to help people. Now I'm running for state Senate to fix our broken housing market, create jobs, lower taxes on working people, and build an economy that works for everyone. Paid for by People for Sharon, Democrat. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Woke Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning here in KGMI. Want to give us a call? We're Asset Advisors. We are located out on the Pacific Highway next to Wilson Furniture. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number 360-733-1200. And check out our website at wealthwakeup.com. And continuing with our global economic roundup for the week, we see that we have Canadian labor data released Friday showed an unexpectedly large jump in new jobs, with over 108,000 people added to their country's payroll. Economists have expected a rise of about 10,000. And President Joe Biden this week called U.S. oil companies war profiteers and threatened to impose windfall profits tax unless they increase domestic production. But such a proposal is seen as likely to receive congressional approval, even in the unlikely event that the Democrats are able to retain control over both houses of Congress in this next week's midterm elections. And health authorities in China push back hard on Thursday against rumors that the government is contemplating easing the COVID-0 policy, though equities in the region rallied strongly this week in anticipation of such a shift. COVID infections in China have risen to their highest rate in six months, prompting tighter restrictions and an unexpected jump in U.S. job openings from 10.3 million to 10.7 million indicates that the U.S. labor market remains tight, keeping the pressure on the Fed to continue raising rates. And J.P. Morgan, Global Purchasing Managers Index, slipped to 49.4 in October from 49.8 in September. That is the lowest level since the early days of the pandemic, and 21 of 31 countries covered reported falling production. The U.S. Treasury says it has not made a decision on whether to conduct bond buybacks to improve liquidity in the U.S. government bond market. And Bloomberg News reported that the U.S. audit officials completed their first on-site inspection round of Chinese companies ahead of schedule. Inverted by nearly 60 basis points, the 2 in 10's U.S. Treasury curve is at the most inverted since the early 1980s. Inverted yield curves have historically meant a harbinger of a recession. And amid a push from the Green Party to get tougher on China, 
German Chancellor Olaf Scholz met with China's President Xi Jinping in Beijing on Friday. The Greens, a member of Scholz's governing coalition, are pressing German businesses to reduce their dependence on China, while Scholz has is warned of risks from decoupling from its largest trading partner. Scholz said he and Xi agreed that Russia threats to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine are irresponsible and extremely dangerous. And on the trade front, Schultz said he pushed for improved market access and greater protections for intellectual property. And the Canadian government is set to propose a 2% tax on corporate stock buybacks. If passed into law, the levy will become in force on January 1st of next year. And in earnings news, with about 85% of the constituents of the S&P 500 index having reported for the third quarter of this year, blended earnings per share, which combines reported data with estimates for those that have yet to report, shows that earnings growth is running at 2.2%, while sales rose 10.5% compared with the same quarter a year ago, according to data from FactSet Research. If you strip out the contribution to earnings growth from the energy sector, then earnings per share has declined about 5% for the quarter. So obviously, the earnings in the energy sector are propping it up a whole lot. Let's go into some detail on that October employment report that we mentioned earlier. This is why you need to look beyond headlines. Non-farm payrolls rose 261,000 in October and were revised up by an additional 29,000 for prior periods, beating a consensus expected gain of 193,000. So far, so good. But please hold off on the champagne. Civilian employment, an alternative measure of jobs that includes small business startups, dropped 328,000 in October, while the labor force, which is people are either looking or working and looking for work, slipped 22,000. As a result, the unemployment rate rose to 3.7% versus 3.5% in September. Overall, these figures paint a job picture that's not as bright as the headline gain in payrolls. Average hourly earnings increased four-tenths of one percent in October, or up 4.7% in the last year. And in normal times, these would be healthy figures, but these are not normal times. Consumer prices are up roughly 8% from a year ago, which means real inflation-adjusted hourly wages are shrinking. Because more people are working, the total number of hours worked are rising. By two-tenths of 1% in October, and by 3.1% in the last year. Combined total wages earned by all workers are up 8% from a year ago. What this means is that in the aggregate, workers might be holding steady with inflation, but only because more people are working. And on a per-worker basis, real earnings are still falling. The bottom line is that the U.S. is not in a recession yet, but the news about the labor market is not quite as positive as payroll headline would suggest. So far this year, payrolls are up at a 407000 per month. Look for continued deceleration in the months ahead as companies start to anticipate slower economic growth and a possible recession in 2023. And the September's International Trade Report came out this week, and the deficit in goods and services came to $73.3 billion in September as imports grew while exports declined. Demand for U.S. goods and services across the globe continues to struggle as soaring dollar has made U.S. goods much more expensive internationally. We like to follow the total volume of trade, which is imports plus exports, which signals how much businesses and consumers interact across the U.S. border. That measure rose by $2 billion in September, is up a robust 17.5% versus a year ago. Unfortunately, the large increase in the past year is not living by more goods and services, but also higher prices as inflation has soared. The good news is supply chain problems look to be improving across the board. For example, the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach over the past few months have seen container ships in the low single digits waiting to be unloaded, much lower than the record high of 109 set in January. It's true in some cases weights have been shifted to other ports, but daily freight rates are also falling rapidly as demand is also weakened. Also notable in the report, the dollar value of U.S. petroleum exports exceeded imports. So far this year, U.S. petroleum exports have exceeded imports in six of nine months. Exports of U.S. crude oil 
and refined products continue to hover near record highs, meaning that much of the release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is just flowing overseas. I'm going to repeat that. Exports of U.S. crude oil and refined products continue to hover near record highs, meaning that much of the release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is just flowing overseas. So much for all that to bring down U.S. oil prices. When you start shipping that oil overseas, it isn't necessarily helping us here at home. In fact, in the long run, it could be compounding our problems here at home. Other news, non-farm productivity rose by three-tenths of percent annual rate in the third quarter. Output rose by 2.8% annualized rate, while hours worked rose by 2.4% annualized, so output per hour rose slightly. Productivity is down 1.4% from a year ago. So real inflation-adjusted compensation declined by 1.7% in the third quarter. And on the manufacturing front, productivity declined at a 1.3% annualized pace in the third quarter's hours 3.3% rose at a faster pace than the output at 1.9. Also reported, initial unemployment claims fell 1,000 last week to 217,000. Continuing claims rose 47,000 to 1.485 million. In other news, the ADP employment report showed 329,000 private sector jobs were gained in October. Also reported recently, cars and light trucks have sold at a 14.9 million annual rate. In October, up from 9.8% versus September, and up from 12.7% versus a year ago. And altogether, these figures show that the U.S. is not in a recession yet. And the October's ISM Manufacturing Index continued to expand in October, but at the slowest rate since the pandemic recovery began, with only 8 of 18 industries reporting growth, respondent comments in October were highly focused on worries about the pace of future activity, with some customers pulling back on new orders due to worries about an economic slowdown. However, that was most notable with the survey responses was that it wasn't said. Specifically, the lack of comments related to supply chain issues which have plagued the manufacturing sector over the last few years. That was reflected in the data and the report as well. While both the new orders and production indices posted increases in October, keeping the headline number of all contraction territory, new orders remain below 50. This is hardly surprising given the consumers have been shifting their preferences away from goods and back towards services. However, given when production rains and expand, this is giving the U.S. factories time to catch up on all the existing orders that already have in the pipeline. The result is first contraction in supply chain pressures in years. For example, the index for order backlogs fell to 45.3 in October. That's the first reading below 50 since the height of COVID worries in early 2020. Meanwhile, supplier deliveries index fell 46.8, its first time in contraction in territory since 2015. This means supply chain problems aren't just getting worse at a slower rate, they're finally reversing. And meanwhile, the employment index rebounded to 50 in October, signaling another expansion, not contraction. A majority of panelists in October have said they're beginning to take a pause on new hiring and allowing labor turnover to reach reduce headcount, a sign that weaker outlook for new orders may finally be hurting demand for the labor in the U.S. factory sector. Finally, the prices index continued to signal that inflation pressures have likely peaked in goods sector falling in the seventh month in a row to 46.6, the first number below 50 since 2020. While lower price goods will help moderate the overall inflation, we expect that the service sector will now be the main driver going forward, keeping price growth well above the Fed's 2% target. In other news, construction spending rose two-tenths of 1% in September, with large gains in manufacturing facilities and roads offsetting declines in healthcare and conservation projects. The gain in construction suggests an upward revision in last week's report. The real GDP grew at a 2.6% annual rate in the third quarter. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake up here on KGMI. Thanks for being with us. We will be right back. Whatcom County has a bright future with Senator Simon Sepsik. You're here ultimately because of the future, because each one of us has this this radical notion, this belief that we as citizens know how to run our lives and spend our money better than a group of politicians and bureaucrats in a far distant capital. It's this radical notion that we in this country have the ability to stay new and to stay fresh, protecting and defending freedom. As John Adams said, however, liberty once lost is forever lost. 
We've seen how true that is over the past two years as our rights seem to go farther and farther away and our freedoms are eroded from us. But the reason that you've worked so hard and sacrificed so much is because you believe in protecting this Whatcom County, Washington State and this country to give it and to give to your children a better life than the one that you inherited. Simon Sepsik, together we can build a better future. Visit simonforwa.com. Paid for by Simon for Senate Republican. Hi, this is Scott from Northwest Sleep Solutions in Fairhaven. As we wind down yet a glorious Northwest summer, it's time again to turn our focus inside. Whether you're a college student needing a last minute mattress for school or somebody looking to spruce up your guest room for the upcoming holidays, or maybe you're just somebody who wants to improve your own sleep, we've got you covered. Choose from over 35 models from manufacturers like Tempur-Pedic, Simmons Beautyrest, 45th Street Natural Latex, Sutherland Sleep, and our own Northwest Sleep eco-friendly line designed right here in Bellingham. All at the best guaranteed prices in the area. Plus, we still offer free delivery, setup, and removal of your old mattress, all at no additional charge. And remember, we also have free signed parking for our customers right behind our building. So come see us at Northwest Sleep Solutions on the corner of 10th and McKenzie in Fairhaven. Northwest, Northwest Sleep Solutions, the solution for a good night's sleep. His commitment to Northwest Washington dates back five generations. Our Congressman Rick Larson. Brought up in a family of eight kids, Rick was raised with the value of hard work. The same way Rick and his wife Tia raised their own two boys. Larson understands the pressures facing families when it comes to the rising cost of living. And why he just passed the new Inflation Relief Act that starts lowering costs by reducing prescription drug prices for Washington seniors. And caps insulin costs at $35. Rick sees the big picture. That's why he just helped pass bipartisan legislation bringing semiconductor manufacturing back to America. Larson's bill eases supply chain issues and means more good-paying jobs, all while lowering prices on cars and electronics. Common sense, practical solutions for working families and local business. That's always been Rick's approach to making a difference for growing our local economy. Rick Larson, Congress. I'm Rick Larson, and I approve this message. Paid for by citizens to elect Rick Larson. Getting ready to sell your home? Then you know clearing it out is the hardest part. With years of belongings, what do you do with it all? R.B. Witt of Iron Gate Estates and Compass Real Estate will help you with the process. They take you through each step from purchasing items you're ready to part with to assisting you with the sale of your home. Their professional, high-quality service includes a free consultation. They'll take the stress off your hands and cure you of that home-selling decision fatigue. Learn how Iron Gate Estates can help you with your sale at irongate-estate.com. Staying connected with your community each Saturday at noon with KGMI's Community Connection as local business leaders share their expert advice. Sponsored by Dewey Griffin Subaru, Ferndale Downtown Association, Lydia Place, UA Local 26, and Lorraine's Window Coverings. Community Connection, Saturdays at noon on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Tired of inefficient heating, poor indoor air quality, and rising energy bills? Contact West Mechanical today at westmechanical.net to explore going ductless with a system from Mitsubishi Electric Cooling and Heating. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning here on KGMI. We'll continue on with our October economic reports, including the October Institute of Supply Management Non-Manufacturing Index and the services sector, basically. Continue to expand in October, but a slower rate than previous month. 16 of 18 industries reported growth. Respondent comments cited resilient sales despite being partially held back by an uncertain economic environment surrounding concerns of a future recession. And business activity in new orders, the two most forward-looking pieces of the report, both declined in October but remained comfortably in expansion territory. 
If you contrast this with forward-looking categories in the ISM manufacturing report from earlier that I gave, it's clear that businesses and consumers are continuing to shift resources away from goods and toward the still reopening services sector. But keep in mind that pre-pandemic services made up roughly 69% of consumer spending. That number fell to 65% during the depths of the pandemic as people stopped going to concerts, movies, restaurants, etc. So gross domestic product data from the third quarter show that number has risen to 66%, expected to see continued growth in the service sector in the months ahead, as spending continues to shift back to the pre-pandemic status quo, which should ultimately lead the U.S. economy back higher in 22. A deeper dive into the details of the report gives evidence that service sector would be doing even better were it not for the issues still lingering in the wake of poor pandemic-related policy decisions. The employment index fell back into contraction territory after expanding two previous months. Respondent comments show that a lack of supply is what's holding the employment index from moving higher, not demand. Meanwhile, the supplier deliveries index creeped up to 56.2, signaling the companies are still dealing with increasing longer waits of time to due to supply chain problems. Finally, the prices paid indexes 17 service industries reported paying higher prices in October, with the only industry reporting a decrease coming from wholesale trade. And so despite these problems, the service sector remains strong, and we expect it will continue to be a source of strength as we close out the year. And looking at the Fed report from their, after their meeting ended Wednesday, question is now how fast, how high, and how long? The Federal Reserve plans to keep raising rates at future meetings, but at a slower pace than it has in the last four meetings. The Fed once again voted unanimously to raise rates by three-quarters of percentage points, or 75 basis points, bringing the target for the federal funds rate to 375 to 4%. But far more attention is being paid to the path forward from this point. And while the statement was not accompanied by updated rate forecasts from the Fed, our next look at dot plots comes in December. It is a clear shift is on the horizon. The Fed statement released included much of the same text seen following their September meeting with a few key additions. First, the Fed noted it anticipates ongoing hikes will be appropriate until they've reached a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. What level proves sufficiently restrictive? Nobody, including the Fed, knows. Coming into 2022, the Fed thought the cumulative hikes of 75 basis points, or three-quarters of a percent, would be enough to quell inflation this year. Then in March, it became 1.75 basis points. In June, it was three and a quarter. And as of September, four and a quarter. During the press conference, Powell said the restrictive level now looks even higher. The second key addition to the statement was a sentence that the Fed will take into account the lags by which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation. In other words, the Fed is moving towards a more measured pace of rate hikes while they wait to see how the year's actions to date flow through the system. These changes set up Powell to clarify during the press conference how they are thinking about where they need to move on rates, which rests on three questions, how fast, how high, and how long. The Fed has moved quickly to raise rates after clearly starting late. And now the focus is shifting to other two questions. How high will rates only have to go? And how long will the Fed keep rates elevated to bring inflation into check? And while the pace of hikes may begin to slow, they're likely to end higher and remain there for longer than was previously anticipated. The fight against inflation is far from done. The actions represent a pivot and how they are approaching the fight. Our biggest concern is that the Fed continues to ignore the M2 measure of money supply, and not one reporter asked a question on the topic. While Powell was questioned on the topic at a recent conference at the Cato Institute, he brushed the idea off and continued to push the same tired model of inflation that has left the Fed well behind the curve, constantly revising forecasts higher. The bottom line is that it's good the Fed has prioritized the fight against inflation, but remains overly optimistic in the effectiveness of its policies to get inflation under control. Following the growth of M2, which has thankfully slowed, 
and must remain low for the foreseeable future for guidance on the path forward from here. And while we're talking about all these other things, strong Fed and whatever, we're also seeing the strong dollar is seen as hurting the U.S. outlook and even tilting the Fed path. We're seeing that a strong dollar is likely to weigh negatively on the U.S. economic outlook and could alter how high the Federal Reserve only raises rates, economists surveyed by Bloomberg said. Nearly half of the economy said that the international fallout from a strong dollar was either somewhat likely or very likely to spill back to the U.S. over the next 18 months and affect monetary policy. Just 28% saw currency strength as unlikely to have any impact. The dollar has risen 13% this year against other major currencies amid geopolitical tensions following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as well as the Fed aggressively raised interest rates to fight on inflation rate that's at a 40-year high. The survey of 40 economists was conducted between October 21st and October 26th, and officials expect to continue their campaign with another 75 basis points, which they did on Wednesday, and their latest forecast shows rates reached 4.4% by year-end, from a current range of 3 to 3 and a quarter, nudging 4.6% in next year. Chair Jerome Powell and his colleagues are trying to cool the economy and ease price pressures by deliberately tightening U.S. financial conditions, of which the value of dollars is an important component. A stronger dollar tends to dampen inflation by reducing the cost of imports and lowering domestic production as it raises export prices. The Fed and its counterparts around the world are in an uncomfortable position of hammering demand to meet a supply-constrained global economy. They understand their spillover effects, but they have no way of overtly addressing these risks, given their own domestic mandates. Economists in the surveys have divided on how serious financial stresses and strains will become, with a majority seeing an impact on the central bank's move. 44% of them in the survey said they believe the Fed could fully complete its aggressive rate tightening despite possible stresses, but 38% said the policymakers would be forced to cut rates earlier than expected, and 18% said the Fed would not be able to raise rates as much as they had planned. Survey respondents also expect rates to peak at 5% early next year, and a majority of economists now expect a U.S. and global recession. A number of prominent economists have warned that troubles in financial markets could cause the Fed as well as other central banks to backtrack their fighting inflation. You have a major financial institution that may crack globally, not in the U.S. maybe now, but certainly internationally. And financial stress is seen as affecting Fed rates. A majority of economists say the Fed won't raise as planned or will cut early financial stresses, were most recently evident in the United Kingdom, where the Bank of England had to step to, up to support the markets, and Liz Truss resigned as Prime Minister after only 44 days in office amid a backlash over how her low-tax economic plan had shook up investor confidence. Two-thirds of economists said the British market turmoil resulted very largely or exclusively from United Kingdom policies, as opposed to the Fed's tightening and the stronger dollar. The Fed is sometimes referred to as the central bank of the world, reflecting the importance of the U.S. and the global economy. Three-quarters of economists say that's a proper description, though 33% also say the Fed doesn't fully appreciate its role. In contrast, 22% said the Fed was responsible only to the U.S. economy and its domestic mandate of maximum employment and price stability. Dick Donahue with you with Wolf Wake Up here on KGMI. I'm going to go ahead and take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. Hi, I'm Dan Johnson, running for state representative. With increased crime, the cost of living, and students falling behind, our state is heading in the wrong direction. This November, you decide where we go from here. As your next state representative, I will fix these issues. Instead of defunding police and releasing dangerous criminals from prison, I will support law enforcement and give them back the tools they need to keep dangerous criminals off the street. Rather than add more taxes that increase the cost of living, I'll vote to cut property taxes, sales tax, and the gas tax. If you hear this and think, I could sure use a break right now, I'm right there with you because you won't get this from my opponent. My opponent works directly for Governor Jay Inslee. We can't afford another two years of more anti-police laws, higher gas taxes, and more fees that add to the cost of living. 
If you want something different out of Olympia, you need someone who will vote differently in Olympia. I'm Dan Johnson, and I would be honored to be your next state representative. Paid for by Vote Dan Johnson. Honey, look what I brought home. Not a cat. You know I'm allergic. Well, you know what they say. When the cat's away, the mice will play. <laughs> Why didn't you just call Biobug? Have you had enough of playing cat and mouse? Biobug Pest Management is here to help. Whether you have rats or mice in your business, residence, or commercial building, Biobug is committed to providing a solution that's right for you. To learn more and get your free quote, visit Biobug.com. Biobug Pest Management. Service you trust, experience you expect. Get informed and inspired with Saturday Morning Live on KGMI. Join a group of knowledgeable hosts as they present a variety of guests and viewpoints on issues important to our area and to you and your family. Sponsored by Asset Advisors, LLC at Linden Sheet Metal each Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Welcome back to what Wake Up Dick Donahue with you here on KGMI this Sunday morning. Got questions for us? Give us a call, 360-733-1200. And I get a lot of questions about Social Security, and I had one ask me about, with G, with that big increase in the cost of living, do they need to claim their Social Security in order to collect the COLA? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. And basically, the 8.7% cost of living adjustment in Social Security benefits for 23 has garnered a lot of attention. Advisors across the country are getting questions from their clients about whether they should file for Social Security benefits now to cash in on that biggest increase in more than 40 years. But the COLA affects the amount of Social Security benefits for a person who is delaying claiming until age 70. And so... The standard 8% annual annual increase in delaying each year beyond full retirement is up to age 70. So the 8.7 COLA also increases it even more. So the question I had was, gee, do I take it? Am I going to lose it? Nope. You're actually going to get about 16, almost 17% more by delaying. And so it's really a big difference as far as the amount. So there's no reason to claim Social Security benefits now in order to cash in on this huge 8.7% cost of living increase. But every year that you're eligible for Social Security, beginning at age 62, and up to the time that you claim benefits, each COLA is automatically applied to your future benefit, even if you haven't yet filed for Social Security. That's in addition to the delayed retirement credits of 8% a year up to age 70. You're also eligible for annual cost of living benefits increases starting in the year you turn 62, according to the Social Security Administration's publication on your retirement benefit and how it's figured. So, you know, this is true even if you don't file for benefits until your full retirement age or even age 70, according to the publication. Social Security Administration increases your benefit beginning with the year that you reach 62. So every year after you're age 62, you do benefit from the cost of living increase. And the benefits are also increased yearly to reflect that increase, if any, in the cost of living. Plus, the longer you wait, you're going to see a huge increase. So another question is the COLA built into the calculation that folks see on their online Social Security benefit page. And the answer to that is no. The estimated benefits don't include annual cost of living adjustments. Social Security Administration cannot provide actual benefit amounts until an individual applies for Social Security. And that amount may differ from the estimate because their earnings increase or decrease in the future or after you start receiving benefits and they will be adjusted for cost of living increases. So the standard SSA estimated benefit statement says, Social Security retirement benefits are based on an individual's average lifetime earnings. SSA calculates your average monthly earnings during the 35 years that you earn the most and indexes those earnings to account for changes in average wages since the year the earnings were received. And if you work fewer than 35 years, the Social Security Administration also includes zeros in the 35-year calculation for those non-covered years, reducing your average lifetime earnings and consequently your future Social Security benefits. But if you continue to work after full retirement age, so regardless of age, even in those additional years of your work, 
you after you claim benefits, you are going to see an increase. So you have to have at least 10 years of covered earnings to collect Social Security. Then applies the formula to those average index earnings to calculate your basic benefit or primary insurance amount. And that's how much you'll receive if you claim Social Security at your full retirement age. But you can choose to collect benefits as early as age 62, but your benefits would be permanently reduced and you'd be subject to earnings restrictions if you continue to work if you claim benefits before your full retirement age. In addition, for every year that you postpone claiming benefits beyond your full retirement age, up to age 70, your benefits are increased by an additional 8% a year. So someone whose full retirement age is 66 could increase their benefits by 32%, waiting four years until age 70 to claim Social Security. Anyone that's born in 1960 or later has full retirement of 67, and their maximum delayed benefit would be 24% more if they postponed benefits up to age 70s or that additional three years. So basically what we're saying is delaying is better if you're able to do it. And, you know, I spend about four days a year, five days a year attending my Master Elite classes with Ed Slot, IRA distribution classes, talking about different things. Did this a couple weeks ago. It was down in Vegas. We actually did a radio show from down there. And then big question comes out about RMDs and the IRS issuing different revenue rulings and who has to take them by year end. And the list seems to be getting longer. It keeps to continue to change some because of continuing changes that we're seeing coming out from the IRS. But year-end means required minimum distribution season, since that typically when you have to take your required minimum distributions, year-end also is when lots of costly RMD mistakes happen. Costly because the 50% penalty on any part of an RMD that's not taken. Unfortunately, though, yes, IRS has temporarily waived that penalty for beneficiaries who originally would have been subject to new RMD rules this year and last year. There's also new life expectancy tables for this year, which are also lowering the amount that you need to take. Basically, at age 72, if you take your year in balance for last year, you start out having to take off about 3.65% of your money. So if you use those new tables... They updated their tables for 22 for both IRA owners and beneficiaries, and they're found in IRS Publication 590B. These tables should be used for IRA owners, plan participants, and beneficiaries subject to RMDs this year. And for IRA owners, it's relatively easy. The SECURE Act raised RMD age to 72. The beginning age is April 1st. For the first year you turn 72, you can actually wait until April 1st of the year after you turn 72. So those that turn 72 this year have technically have until April 1st of 23 to take their first RMD. But if you wait until next year to take that RMD, they must take two RMDs, one for 22 and one for 23, bunching that income into one tax year. It's usually better to take the first RMD by the end of the year that you turn 72 so that you can separate their first two RMDs into two tax years, generally lowering the tax bill in each year. That's the easy part. Now let's talk about beneficiaries, because this is where the confusion comes in. Who is subject to RMDs this year? Well, that's a loaded question. There are a whole bunch of complexities created by the SECURE Act, the proposed regulations the IRS issued earlier this year, and the IRS relief announced on October 7th in Notice 2253. Here's a snapshot of who who does have to take them. Designated beneficiaries that, that inherited their IRS before 2020 have to take them. Beneficiaries who inherit in 2020 or later when the account order dies after the required beginning date. So the required bidding date was 70 and a half, now it's 72. Little little change there. And basically now those people have to have the worry about taking out RMBs from years one through nine. And at the end of the 10th year, they have to take the balance of the money out. And the IRS originally was supposed to penalize 50% penalty for missed 21 and 22 RMDs in this category, but because they didn't get the rules out, they're waiving that penalty for last year and this year. Then there's eligible designated beneficiaries, and then there's non-designated beneficiaries where the account owner dies on or after the required beginning date. Again, that so-called age 72 or age 70 and a half, depending on the old rules and the new rules. But the Secure Act eliminated the stretch IRA 
replaced it with a 10-year rule for most non-spouse beneficiaries who inherited in 2020 or later. In addition, you have what you call eligible designated beneficiaries. They still qualify for that stretch IRA, but they must qualify as a designated beneficiary by being named on the IRA or the employer's plan's beneficiary form. Very important that they are named on that form. And there are five classes of eligible designated beneficiaries. One is a surviving spouse. One is a minor children of the account holder until they each reach age 21. Now, that does not apply to grandchildren. Then there's disabled individuals under strict IRS rules. There's chronically ill individuals. And there's individuals older, but not more than 10 years younger than the IRA owner. Then we have a classification called other designated beneficiaries. Under IRS proposed rules, other designated beneficiaries who inherited in 2020 from someone who died after the required beginning date, which was age 72 for in this example, would be required to start taking annual RMD last year. For deaths in 21, annual RMDs would be needed to start this year. And the groups, uh, the beneficiaries are subject to 10-year rule requiring the entire balance be withdrawn by the end of the 10th year. In addition, since the inherited from someone who had already begun RMDs, these beneficiaries must normally take RMDs for the years 1 through 9 of the 10-year term. Of course, the IRS came out with a rule update. And their notice 2253, they waived that penalty, which I mentioned earlier. For example, if an IRA owner died in 21 at age 75 after his required beginning date, Daughter Mary, age 50 and 22, inherited. Mary originally would have needed to begin RMDs at 22 based on her age this year. Now Mary doesn't have to worry about a penalty if she didn't take that RMD. But pending further IRS guidance, Mary will have to start taking annual RMDs in 23, the second year of her 10-year period. need to note that Roth IRA beneficiaries are not subject to RMDs in 1 through 9, but they do have to take all that money out by the end of the 10th year. And then we have a category called non-designated beneficiaries. I'm going to run out of time here in a second. This is a category for beneficiaries who are either not individuals or weren't named as a beneficiary form, uh, likely inherited through the estate. This group has special RMD rules. Basically, they have to take that money out you know, much quicker. So mom died in 21 at age 80 but neglected to name her beneficiary in her form. The estate becomes a default beneficiary or some Tom inherited the estate. Tom is a non-designated beneficiary since he inherited through the state, not through the form. He must take his RMD based on mom's beginning single age of the single life attempts. He doesn't get relief from the IRS. A lot of different rules here. Anyway, we work a lot with this. And uh, it is something that we try to keep up with. So if you've got questions for us, give us a call, 360-733-1200. Don't forget our live shows on Saturdays at 11 o'clock. And once again, have a great week. Thanks for listening. Appreciate you being here. voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor.